Welcome back, my friends. We're continuing this ongoing series on who will nurture my faith, studying the parting teaching of our Rebbe, the Maimar Vata Tetzave. We've established this notion that Meshe Rabbeinu serves to connect us to HaKadosh Baruch that he benefits in return. We've established this notion that this ideal is a recurring theme in every time and in every generation. There's a Meshe Rabbeinu who serves to stimulate the spiritual essence of every member of Am Yisrael. We talked about the methodology of the tzaddik awakening or stirring that pintaliyid, that nuclear essence of our Jewishness. And we also talked about a seeming disparate idea, circumstances, placing enormous pressures to bear, yielding a revelation of the core of our spiritual being. We discussed these teachings, we talked about historic highs and lows, the seeming anomaly of being in the worst of circumstances and yet functioning with greatest spiritual acuity. Because it's in those times when we are faced with the fury and fire of our enemies that Mesira Snefesh, that the proverbial innate ability for self-sacrificial devotion kind of kicks in. Now these two teachings seem to be somewhat at odds, or at least mutually exclusive. We're enabling to bring them together. So welcome back for part four. This class is once again dedicated in honor of Bracha, Basrib Shmuel, on occasion of her first yard site today on Gimel Tamas. It's dedicated by her children, Debbie and Victor Janowski, and Len Karakowski. She was a kind and a caring mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother who instilled within her progeny a love for Hashem and a dedication to Yiddishkeit despite the challenging circumstances of their Yiddishkeit isolation May her neshama have an aliyah from the Torah we share together. May she be a melitzi yosher, a good to better for her children. So let us continue. The Yesh Levayrze, our Rebbe, seeks to bring together, to forge a synergy of these two seeming disparate teachings. What? nurtures our faith. Amayshir Rabbeinu or anti-Semites? Exalted spiritual charisma or the dark and diabolical pressures that we the Jewish people sometimes face. We can explain all of this. 
by virtue of an idea that is richly developed in the teachings of Hasidus, especially in the famous Hemshech, which is known as Terav or Tafri Shayim Beis. It is the crowning culmination of the Fifth Rebbe's teachings, the longest continuous series of Hasidic discourses ever, delivered during the tumultuous years which led to the collapse of the Tsarist regime, the First World War, the displacement of so many Jewish people, the rise of the Bolsheviks and the Soviet Union and the conditions that tragically paved the way for the Holocaust. And in the midst of all that fury, in the midst of all that fire, the Rebbe Rashab, exiled from Lubavitch, delivers this years-long teaching of Hasidus known as Ayim Beis. And there we find elaborated and developed this idea that Zeshe Yisrael Ma'aminim Belikus. This notion that we the Jewish people innately lean towards faith, innately seem to express this connection to God in a way that entirely transcends rhyme, reason, education, and affiliation. Rather than being a result of our experiences or catalyzed by the things we know, instead, there's this persistent connection to Hashem. With emunah pshuta, simple faith, not intelligent faith, not the result of emotions or heartstrings, just pure, simple faith. He or she, despite their lack of education, or sometimes despite their sophistication and knowledge, kindredly express the same simple faith in Hashem. Not because they understand or can prove the existence of God, but, but just because. Okay, what is the cause? Because is not good enough. Why indeed is it so? What is this a symptom of? There are two distinctly different reasons or explanations offered for the profundity of this simple faith. The first, in the words of the Talmud, in the beginning of Mesechet Megillah on page 3, because their mazel, meaning their subconsciousness, their spiritual alter ego saw. In simple words, that the neshama, as it exists in a higher and loftier iteration, it sees divinity and godliness. 
The Rebbe points out in the parentheses, this is a re'iya, a vision, something seen in the mind's eye that is l'mayla mehaseichel, that is transcendent of intelligence. I don't understand what I just saw, but I know what I just saw. I know it to be so. Yeah, but that makes no sense. You couldn't have seen that. I said, well, I really can't explain to you how or what happened, but I know what I saw. I know it with an absolute certainty because I saw it. And because there's a part of us that's seeing with perfect clarity, 20-20 vision, this in turn has an impact. It influences the neshama as it exists within the frame of a terrestrial reality. The neshama shebeguf. And it influences it insofar as ha'emuna, the faith be'elikus. I want to reiterate something I talked about in a previous segment. Seeing is not believing. That's one of the most ridiculous statements anybody could ever make. Seeing is seeing. If I can see you, I know that you are there because I can see you. I don't believe that you're watching now. I have good reason to assume you're watching. Because every time I've streamed these classes, and I think it's been hundreds of times already, I see feedback after. So if this live stream is working, and I'm assuming that it is, it seems to be on the screen, I'm not going to believe that you're watching. I kind of know you're watching based on statistical probabilities. I mean you, I don't know who you are. Somebody is watching. I know what the numbers are typically. There may be 50, there may be 80, but there are somebody watching right now. I can't see that, but I understand it. Understanding is understanding. And when I teach a class in which I can see, be it Zoom or in person in the good old days, I don't have to believe or know Get that word belief out. I don't have to rationally come to the conclusion that somebody's got to be there. I see you there. Perhaps I might not see you, but I could hear you. Well, there's value to that too. Different ways of assimilating or gaining information, be it sight through the eye, hearing through the ear, are not to be confused with belief. If seeing is believing, pray tell what is seeing. <laughs> if hearing is believing, what is hearing? Hearing is hearing. Seeing is seeing. Rationally knowing or making an intelligent assumption is but that. I don't believe that you're listening. I don't believe you're there. I know you're there based on rhyme and reason. Statistical probabilities. So what is belief? Belief is knowing something that I couldn't know by virtue of my hearing because it makes no sound waves. I'll never be able to see until Mashiach comes. 
and I can't necessarily even know or understand what I believe. Because there's an essence of godliness and divinity that makes no sense to the human mind whatsoever. <laughs> Incidentally, I've heard foolish people say, why would I want to study about God, which is what Hasidus teaches? I'm perfectly comfortable just believing in God. That would be to supplant vision with faith. Why believe in that which you can see? Why believe in that which you could hear? We need to believe in the things we can't see, hear, or understand. And in order for our faith to be fully developed, we'd have to see what we can see, hear what we can hear, understand everything that we could possibly understand, and that's an ever-increasing envelope for as you learn and your mind expands, you're able to grasp more. But of course, at a certain point, all of us will reach our limits. No matter how vast a person's mind is, and no matter how deep a person's grasp is, there's limits because we are finite created entities, and there's certain things we just can't understand. That's where belief begins. <laughs> belief begins where understanding ends. And there's this simple nature of faith that punctuates all souls equally. It's actually regardless of the level of sophistication or understanding. There's, there's a certain element of faith, an essence of certainty about God, which can never make sense. And yet we all believe it with perfect or simple faith. Nobody's seen it. <laughs> Nobody's heard it. You can't really rationalize it. If I may, let me give you a simple example. I'm not saying that there isn't, but I have never yet encountered a person who doesn't believe that their parents' soul is now with God or has a desire, is desirous of saying Kaddish. Even those who strongly remonstrate that they're just, they're just doing a you know, spiritual culture. It's just a tradition. And yet they attach such importance to the tooth fairy of Kaddish <laughs> that you wonder, hey, it's just a tooth fairy. You don't really believe in this. Well, I don't really believe in it, but I need to say Kaddish anyway. Or I need to say Yiskor. Or I need to light my Gyorzeit candle. Somehow, when it comes to the eternity of the neshama, which, by the way, makes no sense. It's not a rational thing. It's not, it's not something we can understand. As the Rebbe once said, What exactly is spirituality? What is it? The ancients called it ether. We don't know what it is. But we believe in it. We can talk about God in a philosophical level. We can have a profound theological discussion. But to know what is Ruchnius, it's beyond us. And yet we all believe in it. How is it that we're so certain? How is it that we're so 
strident in this absolute awareness of something we can't possibly experience? And the answer is that subconsciously there's a part of our neshama that sees all of this. It's called a mazel. I know you think of mazel tov. And <laughs> there's a lot to be talked about with regard to a mazel. Let me just introduce a, an interesting teaching. M- merely for illustrative purposes. There's a Gemara that says, Ein lecha esev milmata. There isn't a blade of grass in our physical world, a world comprised of uh, three-dimensional reality on nuclear physics, there isn't a blade of grass. She'ein loy mazel that doesn't have a constant signal that's reaching it. And the signal, so to speak, connects with it continuously. It's continuously beaming a signal. And it's saying or communicating this message of biology. Grow, 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 grow. It's a spiritual essence, the alter ego of every blade of grass. Never mind every insect, reptile, or, or all of marine life. Of course, all teeming creatures and animals, and especially us, human beings created in God's image. There is a muzzle, there is a spiritual force that's constantly beaming its messaging to us. You're sitting on the highway, your GPS is on, and there's a constant signal. Your GPS is talking to a satellite. There may be 50,000 cars sitting on the, on the DVP. It's a parking lot. Everybody's trying to come up north from downtown. All of these cars, in all likelihood, may have a GPS. Used to be a big deal today, it's on everybody's phone. And everybody's getting different directions. And there's a signal. The signal is something that really is all-encompassing. It's a signal. All of those cell phones are connecting through a common tower, but they're all getting individual messaging. Think about that. That's created by people. (laughs) How phenomenal is that technology? That's a pale metaphor, a lame parable for this notion that every one of us is in touch with a satellite. Every one of us is in touch with the vast, overwhelming reservoir of spirituality called neshama. There's only the tip of the iceberg, only think of it inverted, that actually reaches us in a physical and terrestrial existence. When the body, chas v'shalom, separates from the soul, the tiny figment of neshama, the tiny tip of that proverbial iceberg, now is restored to go back, goes back to its source. So the most of the neshama isn't trapped in the vicissitudes of time or in the frame of a body. And that part of the neshama is living and breathing, as it were, divinity. It sees the presence of God. It knows the presence of God. It sees it with clarity. 
So there's a signal that's being beamed constantly. We're getting directions. We don't know what the satellite's seeing. <laughs> the satellite's telling us that on a half a mile from now, there's a car pulled over. There's a, there's a, there's a police presence somewhere. And that there's a detour six miles ahead. So it's rerouting and giving us new direction now. We're just getting the directions. We don't see. Our phone doesn't see what the satellite sees, but the satellite does. We get directions from our neshama. Our neshama impels, it pushes us. We should do certain things. Maybe it schleps us into shul on the high holidays. Maybe, maybe it pulls us in to say Yizkor or Kaddish. Or maybe somehow it's not letting us be as apathetic as we'd like to be. <laughs> not letting us just keep pressing snooze and ignoring the persistent messaging that's coming from our core. Give me some meaning. Give me some spirituality. No, I'm not happy like a pig up to his snout in sensual pleasure. No, I'm not happy in the muck and the mire of materialism. I'm looking for something deeper. Please stop medicating me with marijuana, it's saying. Stop trying to drown me in whiskey. Give me what I ask for. We misinterpret this messaging. Its symptom is one of a lack of happiness, a lack of fulfillment, a sense of inner frustration, maybe inner chaos. A lack of peace, missing serenity. Many of us assume it's just because we need a little more horsepower on the car we drive, a, a shinier buckle on our shoes, or a fancier phone. Maybe it's we need a new swimming pool, or we need to have new furniture, and then we'll be happy. And like an addict who's addicted to a foreign and fake substance, we keep gorging on this, on this pseudo filler. It gives us a temporary release of serotonin, so we think we're actually gonna be happy soon. And then we're unhappy again because <laughs> it's not what we need. So we gorge on it all over again and we have some more of it and we become addicted to it. And the fault of this addiction to materialism is actually our neshama. <laughs> in, a, in a tragic twist, the neshama's yearning and thirst for spirituality and for holiness, its connection with God that it craves is what's causing all of this materialistic muck that's clogging our arteries and filling our hard drive because we're misinterpreting the message. The neshama sees with clarity. On occasion, we express this profound faith, simplistic faith, faith that is transcendent of rhyme and reason because we just know. I don't care if I can't see or hear. It doesn't matter that I don't understand. I just know it to be so. That's the first. That's the opening explanation as to why we have this simple faith. And then Hasidus offers another explanation. The That the root of this powerful faith who may etzim on the Shoma. It hails not from something seen 
by the neshama, but rather from the very fact that the neshama is, by definition, a piece of divinity. And this, the Rebbe adds in the parentheses, is shalomailamim is layochazi. This is loftier than something the neshama sees. It's something the neshama is. There's a difference between the things that I see and in turn influence me and who I am. I'm not being influenced by something I see. It's who I am. The notion that the essence of the Jewish soul is ever connected to God, he is an essential quality of the neshama. It's a defining hallmark of the neshama. It's not an experience of the neshama. It's not something the neshama visualizes. It doesn't hinge on a phenomenon, on a reason, on, on some kind of thing, something that catalyzes it. Not even something seen in vision is the highest sense of awareness. Something we understand, we process. Something we see, we know it to be so because we're seeing it. Even when it's a re'iyah I don't understand, but I know because I see it. And yet, the latter form of faith is deeper and greater. Here the Rebbe offers us an original interpretation and elaboration on this concept. When the Rebbe says, perhaps, for us it means, certainly. The me'achilukim she'bein shnei that amongst the distinctions, and there are numerous, numerous distinctions, but amongst the distinctions between these two dimensions, notions, these explanations or inyonim, who? That the faith that we have, the faith we possess during our terrestrial journey, when we are body and soul married inseparable, here, as you and I are sharing Torah right now, if it is caused by what the subconsciousness, what the neshama sees, pre-consciousness, if you will, the very core essence of something in us that knows because it sees, it will ever remain atmospheric. Now, atmospheres have an influence on us. We are all influenced by the atmosphere in which we are. But it doesn't reflect a real personal change. We might be thrust into an atmosphere. Maybe the atmosphere is joyous, jovial, uplifting. We might get swept along with the fervor of the moment. We might get kind of happy because we're in this an amazing, positive, upbeat atmosphere. We're surrounded with so many smiles and so much happiness and so much joy, so much, so much, so much wonderful energy that, you know, it just makes you forget the misery and the sadness that you might have been dealing with five minutes ago. You're at this concert and everybody's singing and everybody's dancing. The music is amazing. The singing is soul uplifting. 
You get swept up in the moment. Did it really change you? So when the music ends, the crowds disperse and lights go out, are you changed? Or were you only uplifted in the moment when you were in that atmosphere? We both know the answer. There might be a lingering effect, but when the atmosphere vanishes, invariably the inspiration that it brought vanishes too. You were sincere at the moment, no question. It wasn't a game, it wasn't a show. You weren't grandstanding or assuming some kind of persona to impress anybody else. But it was just atmospheric. So it is also this faith, this certainty. Because we, some part of us sees. Okay, I see it. I know it. Yet it doesn't change me. Think about the metaphor that I shared a number of segments ago. The Ganeth about to steal, who's praying for God's help. Seriously? If you believe in God, why would you violate His word? If you believe in God, why don't you believe that He could provide for you without your doing something which is a contravention of His instructions? Well, I, I do believe in God. Well, if you believe in God, why are you doing that? I was once on my way into a local hospital and I met a fellow who used to come to join us in Shul many, many years ago. And then unfortunately he fell in love with a non-Jewish woman, a very fine woman, but he was disappointed at my lack of willingness to embrace that situation. And he was, he was so powerfully in love that he couldn't appreciate or understand that I said, well, it's not permissible to marry somebody who's not Jewish. Hashem doesn't want that. He couldn't, he couldn't relate to that. And he became disenchanted and he stopped coming around. There's nothing I could do. And I hadn't seen him for a number of years. And I'm walking into this, the hospital. And I bump into this guy. And he's eating a cheeseburger <laughs> as he's walking out. I try to remember to carry tefillin with me wherever I go. I have a little pair, I keep it in my hand or my pocket in the winter. And in the summer, I just keep it in hand. And we locked eyes. And he reddened and, he, and I said, uh, Shalom, how are you? And he shyly said, oh, I'm fine, hi. And I held up the tefillin and I said, Tefillin? <laughs> he looked at me incredulously. And he said, I'm eating a cheeseburger. I said, yeah, but you can still do a mitzvah. And he says to me, what is wrong with you? How can I touch tefillin with a cheeseburger? I said, so throw it out and wash your hands off. <laughs> Which he promptly did. This was way before COVID, but after SARS for us. So ever since SARS, there have been sanitizing stations outside every healthcare facility. And he vigorously washed his hands and rubbed his mouth to take off any trace of the cheeseburger because he didn't want to touch the tefillin with the cheeseburger. And he gulped it down so <laughs> it shouldn't be the vestige or trace of it shouldn't be in his mouth. And he made a bracha and we put on tefillin and he said the opening passage of Shema 
And then he vanished into the afternoon and I continued doing what I was doing and I, I was reflecting. I remember on the way up the elevator, I'm thinking how amazing, how amazing is this? Here's a fellow who married out of the faith. He's angry at me because I'm sticking to my guns and I said the Torah is not negotiable. He's ready to put on film, but he's bothered by the fact that I would have the chutzpah, if you will, to ask him to put on film when his hands are covered with the oil of the cheeseburger. And I'm looking at him and saying, I don't understand. Like, if you believe that there's something toxic about the oil of the cheeseburger, and you believe there's something that's holy or, or resonates with sanctity, in a, it's a leather box, a leather strap. If you believe in that, well, so... Why are you living the kind of life you're living? Why are you eating the cheeseburger? I didn't ask him the question. And of course, I don't believe that he could actually explain what had just happened to me. I'm just sharing the story because it so powerfully illustrates a truth that we come face to face with on a daily basis. I'm not criticizing this young man. Who knows if I'd fare any better if I would have the same challenges, maybe far worse. I'm really not criticizing him. I'm marveling at the beauty of his neshama. I'm saddened by the fact that he's trapped in his realities, the external realities that are disabling that neshama from fully expressing itself in a life that is punctuated with continuous love and loyalty to Hashem and His Torah. So that faith the faith in the holiness of tefillin, the faith in the, in the negative energy of non-kosher food, the faith that that actually means something and that the two somehow are noxious and can't mix, it comes from the fact that the neshama sees divinity. So it's real, it's raw, it's intense, but it's atmospheric. It, it didn't penetrate him in a personal way. It was a passing kind of awareness. An awareness that always stays with him, yet isn't powerful enough for him to harness and to channel in a manner that changes his life. The kivan shanashama shalamaila, because it's the result of the nashama that's on high not the neshama that's residing in his consciousness, in his aware, cogent reality here on earth. It's l'mayla me'eslapshos. It's beyond the possibility of being, if you will, woven into a meat suit of bone, sinew, a consciousness made of human minutia, survival instinct, selfishness, and sensual drive. L'chein, its impact, its influence on the neshama, that's enclosed in the bodily reality, it remains atmospheric, on the surface. In order for the faith, not the faith on high, but the faith experienced by me and you, right here and now in our terrestrial reality, in order that that should be that can't be only through this subliminal messaging 
a subconscious awareness that my spiritual pre-consciousness sees something, but that's al yedei gilu yaskashlus atzmos te etzem haneshama. That comes from nurturing, from sustaining and actualizing the very essence of the soul. Ki etzem haneshama, the essence of the soul. Ki etzem shel haneshama hamalubeshes beguf. The essence of the soul is not only the essence of the soul on high; it's the essence of the soul below here too. The essence or the DNA code that is found in the brain is not different than the essence or DNA code found in the toenail. The toenail can be cut without you screaming at all, even though it's actually alive and growing. Because it's so devoid of life. But the essence is your DNA. The same thing that powers your nails to grow in their unique way, powers you to think your unique way. It's the same essence. It's the core code that comprises who you are. That's a metaphor. That's a reflection of a spiritual reality. The faith of the neshama, that's embodied in this physical or terrestrial reality, which is as a result of the essence of the soul, that would be experienced in a personal way up close, intensely, and pragmatically, if we could only reveal our core, if we could only be true to our essence. Every one of us is considered a Ben Bat Yisrael, a son or daughter of Israel, a Ben Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, a Batzar Rivka Rachel a child of the patriarchs and matriarchs, and as the Alter Rebbe explains, in Lakotatera and in Tera Ur, the, the intrinsic bond that we share with our patriarchs and matriarchs is actually genetic, spiritual genetics, that is. It has nothing to do with the color of our skin or the shape of our bodies. It has nothing to do with our predisposition or innate proclivities. It has to do with a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that we have within us, Avraham Yitzchak and Yaakov, just as our parents' DNA is within us. And you can't change that. It's who you are. You can ignore who you are. You can try to forget who you are. But it's still who you are. And guess what? Unless you're true to who you are, you will never really be satisfied or happy. Most Jews I know aren't. <laughs> Most of the Jews I know are not being true to their essence. I say that with sadness. Oftentimes, I can easily count myself amongst those Jews, unfortunately. I know that I'm happiest when I'm living as Hashem wants me to. And I believe that regardless of who you might be, the same applies for you. It's only if there's a ruach shtus, there's a spirit of folly, which obfuscates, confuses, and disables you from seeing that truth. If only we could be in touch with the inner rhythm of who we are for real, we would become that person. Not because there's a pre-consciousness essence that's seeing something, because that's on high. And because it's on high, its influence will ever be atmospheric. The question is, 
how do we reveal our essence? Who will nurture my faith? The question really is who will reveal my essence? Val Pisa, and based on this thesis, Yesh Levayer Kesher Ho'inyon so the Rebbe has introduced a novel thesis, a new analysis of pre-developed ideas in Hasidus. And with this new reframing, and with this marvelous new understanding, we can also appreciate what's going on in the Mimer that the Rebbe is elaborating on. That Mimer of Yehudim from 1927. The Mimer in which we talk about the Rebbe who nurtures or sustains faith and the circumstances that call forth our essence. Shahoinian, the Kosis Lamoir that the idea of the pressures brought to bear somehow successfully allowing our inner essence, our inner heroism, our inner spiritual metal to radiate forth, that comes behemshech, it comes as a continuation, not a separate, but a continuation of the explanation to the idea of raya mehemna, of the shepherd who nurtures and sustains faith. Why? Listen carefully. This notion that there is an exquisite soul, a spiritual giant, a soul that radiates with sensitivity for the needs of every single neshama, and that that Moshe soul is sustaining and nurturing the emuna. The way it functions is that the Meshir the shepherd of faith, is actually trying to help you reveal your essence. That which is Lamaila is more profound, higher and more powerful than the idea of subconsciousness or a neshama, a portion of the neshama, lion's portion of the neshama that sees godliness. The ma'or, shalomayla ma'or, the source of light, which is loftier, deeper, and more powerful than the rays that it emits. Masher kosiv kosis lamayr. So one second. If it's the tzaddik who is bringing forth the mo'er, then why does it say kosis, which we explained as crushed to the point that the inner heroism and spiritual force reveals itself? And he explains in the mo'er that in order to reach this source of light, is only to be experienced under the privation and suffering, under the deprivation and the persecution of golos, of exilic reality, as we explained in the previous segment. That's because because the primary laying bare or revealing of the core essence of the soul the greatest expression of neshama, 
the most powerful expression of the unbreakable bond between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and between Am Yisrael is when its members make sacrifice. When we are ready to pay a price, that reveals the unbreakable nature of this bond. It's when it's challenged. It's when rhyme and reason were to suggest that you kind of peel off and here's where you call it quits. But the fact that you don't, the fact that you persevere, you push forward, and you continue to express that faith when there's a price to be paid, that is the most powerful expression of moir that we could ever envision, that we could ever be able to see expressed. So in other words, is it the circumstances or is it the charisma of spiritual leadership? And the answer that I was suggesting is it's actually both. It's the charisma and the force of spirit of that spiritual leadership at a time of exile that creates the perfect storm, the perfect conditions for the deepest revelation, the most powerful expression of the neshama. This is a very deep concept. We're going to be, continue to explain this. I urge you to come back soon for part five as we continue to explore this incredible mimer. Thanks for joining us for this segment. I'll see you back soon.